Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. And joining us this week from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative from Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, and rejoining us after a, a, a hiatus that was just, just painful to even think about, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos. Yay, now it's a party. Yes, and there, and there, as we say, is always is our station manager, Peter J. All right, we're going to have a bit of a, a mishmash here today. I think we're going to start out with the main topic of how old is too old. We've got a uh, recent news popping up with a couple of uh, veterans, Mitch McConnell and a fellow by the name of Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell, 81, Biden, 80. How old is too old? Now, McConnell seems to be uh, providing political cover to Biden and diluting the GOP attacks on Biden due to his age, because how can they attack Biden without attacking Mitch? Other little things we might touch on. Uh, CA, CNN is quoting that the polls showing Trump and Biden both have low approval ratings. A judge orders removal of floating migrant barrier in the Rio Grande down in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, the DOJ, Department of Justice, has announced Hunter Biden will be indicted this month on gun charges. There's another possible government shutdown in the offing. Always a joy. Say it's not so. I'm, I can't. <laughs> we have a young fellow from Alabama, um, someone who played football without a helmet, Tommy Tuberville. And he wants the Secretary of the Navy to stop sailors on ships from, quote, doing poems, unquote over uh, loudspeakers on battleships. And lastly, and this one I think is going to spark some real comment, we've got three-eyed dinosaur shrimp surfacing in the Nevada desert. Is this the end time sign? Oh my. I would like to pass it out now to all of our participants, but Ms. Dr. Linos, please, please I'm start us off. Uh, I'm starting you off just because I've been, I've missed you all this summer. And, and we have missed you. Despite you having a huge list of uh, topics this morning, I want to just throw in a PSA that COVID is still with us. I currently am COVID positive myself, and I know Jill Biden is too. And, you know, there are just letting people know that the fall, as we, you know, head into the fall with flu and other things, take precautions again. I know they're not great, but would encourage everyone to mask if you are in really crowded places and if you are in any way in 
uh, immunocompromised and to reach out to your doctors if you do get a positive COVID test because Paxlovid and other drugs can help and to get your vaccines once we have the, the new strain list. Sorry to start with that PSA, but it's top of mind. As well, uh, Natalia, I, I'm going to move six feet away from you. if you. Yes, I'm glad do we're that. doing this over Zoom. I'm glad we're doing this over Zoom. Uh, and I washed my hands before joining you this morning. <laughs> just, last week, just last week, I was wondering to myself, looking at a shelf where I keep things, what am I going to do with all these masks? Mm. Well, now I know. The, the, yes, keep them on hand. So the, I do want to start with our our, to, our top uh, topic around, you know, what, and I don't know how you said it, what what age is too old? How old is too old? Too old. Mm -hmm. We got to also include the Supreme Court justices in this, mm -hmm. given the amount of dementia we've seen recently. Yeah. So, you know, but, as someone, that's just me. Yeah. No, no, we should we should include everyone. You know, how old is too old to, you know, be active in politics, right? Because there's many other places. And, you know, as someone who is, I think, the youngest on the show, but also not very young myself, you know, I'm I'm a mom of three kids. You know, I think it's important to know that our, our voters, right, the at least here in Massachusetts, you know, most of our voters are older, uh, older voters, you know. And so representation, I personally think that age and experience is really important and that unless you have some documented cognitive decline, physical challenges that come with old age should not bar anyone from uh, running for office because physical challenges, you know, all of us, and, and this is a stat that um, the disability rights community always says is that something like 50% of all Americans will have a disability, you know, because of age uh, as they age. And so, and it can happen at young age, at later age, and we can't exclude 50% of the population from doing things like, you know, running, being being politically active in politicians and leaders. So physical disabilities, you know, we have accommodations, we have ways to ensure that people can perform at their highest capacity. Now, cognitive declines also happen. And some of those are just, you know, you're a little slower, but that doesn't mean that you don't have judgment. I mean, judgment is what we want. We want people to be able to take decisions well. And if that means you make that judgment in 30 seconds instead of 20 seconds, or if you stutter or misspeak, I really don't think that that's a concern at all. But I do think that there is a level of self-awareness and, and making sure that we use all the technologies that we have, whether it's you know innovations in hearing aids, there's such innovation. And I was so frustrated seeing my elderly father-in-law like refuse to use a hearing aid or innovations when in fact, you know, that would just make things easier. So making sure that that stigma is removed because I think people refuse it because of the stigma and the ageism that exists. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, I'll let I'll let others jump in. Well, I can I can describe to you when I think that there is a test for when a senator is too old is when he looks out at the audience and says, "Hey, you kids, get off my law! <laughs> <laughs> you kids, get off my lawn!" It's interesting that we seem to not include Mr. Trump in any of this. Not to bring him in prematurely, but he's not that far behind the others as well. Now 77. Um, and there, too, there's the question of having some way to reasonably assess the mental faculties of people who basically have lifetime appointments like the Supreme Court. I And again, that's one I think you want to walk on lightly, because at some point there may be people who are in high office who really aren't prepared to continue to do the job. Six years is an awful long time, even for a term. You get voted in mm -hmm. as a senator. It's a long run. 
But, you know, I think in, in Mitch McConnell's case, I think that he's certainly still up to the job, even with what lapses I've seen. I am intrigued by the fact that President Biden has you know, reaffirmed their friendship mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and and thrown his support behind McConnell with respect to you know his current condition. And I think that that was on on many levels a wise position to take. Mm-hmm. Now, it, I would like to it, uh, mm-hmm. chime in and say, Please. OK, so if you have a determination that somebody is too old, whatever that may be. How do you implement that type of a program? Mm -hmm. So I will say, uh, beginning uh, with Massachusetts, Massachusetts has a mandatory retirement age for judges at age 70, which, quite frankly, I think is too young to require somebody Mm -hmm. to uh, retire. But that's one way it is implemented. I suppose one could argue that by having a mandatory retirement age of 70 for judges, you're going to continuously rotate the stock that you have of judges, and, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe not so much. But you know, I think at, at age 70 in, in 2023, I don't think that necessarily should disqualify you from uh, sitting as a judge. I mean, you've obtained tremendous amounts of wisdom over the years and uh, uh, probably can uh, contribute mightily. Uh, to the cause of justice. So there's an example of a law that is in place uh, that forces people out at 70, uh, but I'm not so sure that that works very well. How would you, for for elected officials, for example, you know, I I often use the retort when people say, uh, I have a term limit, and I say, well, we have term limits, you know, and it's up to people to decide uh, what is too old. Uh, when they have a uh, comparison between candidates. So uh, let me throw that out for uh, some chatter. Well, one of the most glaring examples of that, that elected official, would be Strom Thurmond. Strom Thurmond was, con- was voted back into office, and he died in office at the age of 100. Do we look at that and say there's just, there was, you know, there, there had to be something? How do we step in and say, okay, to the electric, no, 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 don't forget it. He's done. He cannot run. How do we do that? Can we do that? No. I think with the laws we have in effect now, we can't do that. I think I think Jeff's point on mandatory retirement is a really interesting one. And I had, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff, I, I worked at the UN for a long time. Mandatory retirement when I joined, which was a while back, was 62. Now they've raised it to 65. And most people were basically thinking about, you know, you could take early retirement at 54. And many people chose to do that to start a second career because they were like, you know, at 62, it'll be hard to get a new career, but at 54, I could. But it is it is an interesting point. And I, I will take us a little off topic, but my I'm really proud of my parents. My parents are both 72 and have started kind of a third career. Um, you know, my father is a surgeon, which requires physical dexterity, obviously. And he's well aware that his hands will not always, you know, he has stable hands now. And he just started as a, well, two years ago at 70, he became a volunteer priest. So on the weekends, he said, you know, I I entered medicine to serve people and to serve them in their moment of pain. At some point, my hands and my mind may not be able to allow me to do that. Um, You know, I may need to leave the operating room, but I can serve them in, you know, in this religious way. And I I was really proud of him for, for doing that, for recognizing. But I'm also proud of him at 72. He's still in the operating room Monday through Friday. His hands are still really stable. 
And that experience of, you know, 40 years is is really vital. He's a top doctor. Uh, and my mom, uh, which I think I've mentioned on the show, you know, is an epidemiologist who became quite active politically um, during COVID and is now a member of the Greek parliament, uh, first time elected at 72. I don't know whether she will continue, you know, for how long, but I actually, you know, we've spoken in the past on shows around <clears throat> the my generation and the younger generation will be changing jobs repeatedly. I don't think we should exclude also older Americans, but I know going back to the elected politics and the role of mandatory, you know, mandatory retirement, maybe, you know, I know unions like to have retirement ages as a protection for for workers, but when does this protection become also an obstacle. If you have 40 years of life ahead of you, that can be really difficult. We've seen people deteriorate physically and mentally after they go out into retirement. So, you know, should we rethink from a, you know, human rights, health perspective, how to both protect workers, but also allow some flexibility? And I know I've been doing a lot of talking because I have to leave early. I, we haven't heard from Michael yet. So I know, Michael, you've changed careers and started a new, really important role um, recently. So wanted to jump in. Yeah, well, you guys are scaring me because uh, <laughs> I happen to resemble this remark, and uh, I'm about to go on my fourth retirement, as a matter of fact. Uh, oh, I'm only, only four? Only four. There are some who are trying to tell me that uh, keep counting because <laughs> they want me to continue. But at the end of October, I'm going to be leaving uh, my final client that I have. And I'm going to spend more time doing those things that quote unquote retirees do. But you guys are scaring me because maybe uh, what will happen is my mental acuities will go through the floor all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, one of the things, too, that we that we've got to keep in mind, and I remember this from uh, various stages of my life so far that age is always one of those things that young people look up to. And here's what I mean by that is that at 25, I thought 45 was older. At 45, I thought 60 was older. And at 74, I'm looking at, oh my goodness, what am I going to be doing when I'm 80? Uh, and how will I be getting around? So the physical uh, and mental acuity does come into sharper focus. Uh, but as one continues to move in that direction, it becomes less and less of a negative factor when you're feeling great, when you're uh, able to compete with young people around ideas, when you're able to express yourself, which I hope that I'm able to uh, to do continually. Uh, but when it comes to politicians, uh, again, I agree with Natalia. You, you know, at what point do you say that the mental acuity it takes to be a politician uh, you've reached that saturation point. I think that that's something for the electorate to decide, not necessarily for a mandatory age to decide, but that's for uh, elected politicians. Now, let's go to Jeff's piece, which is positions that might be appointed. There, I think, especially with the proliferation, you always want to have uh, a variety of perspectives uh, in those appointed positions. And so I could see something a little more uh, a little more stable and set when it comes to, let's say, for example, judges or any kind of other administrative task where you're going to be appointed. You may want someone who's older, someone who's middle aged, someone who's younger so that you get those perspectives uh, in those positions. 
Now, let's talk about specifically Joe Biden, Trump, and Mitch McConnell. Of the three, I think all three of them uh, demonstrate a mental acuity, albeit uh, McConnell has had some uh, physical problems in the last few uh, months. But apparently those things are not necessarily related to any kind of stroke or uh, any kind of debilitating kind of uh, things that may come to him. So, uh, you know, how old is too old? Uh, part of it, again, I think we have to leave to the electorate. And part of it is a matter of what kind of perspectives do we want uh, in positions? There are, no, also, ahead, there are also other things to consider. Um, and, and there's a deeper history here. And we can go back to Franklin and Eleanor, where it was said that, you know, she really provided an awful lot of guidance in the White House when dealing with his infirmity and his inability at, from time to time. And more recently, uh, the Reagan administration, where where it was said that Nancy exercised a substantial degree of influence in Reagan's last days in the White House with respect to providing guidance. So, yeah, so what we Woodrow had Wilson. in both of those cases yeah. sometimes was referred to as a shadow presidency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had Woodrow Wilson's wife. Right. He had suffered that stroke, and uh, she evidently was the de facto president at that time. So how how strong does your staff have to be to step in and say, we're not going to allow this? You know, we'll, we'll, well that gets it. to the issue yeah. of transparency. Yeah, and exactly. I think, I, I think if there is anything that does need to be in place, mm -hmm. it is some type of mandatory declaration, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that you know, all is right. I have to do the same thing as a private pilot. Every mm -hmm. year there has to be a mandatory declaration by a doctor that I'm fit to fly. And there's no age criteria. My flight instructor was 86 when he taught me how to fly. He was a World War II guy. Mm -hmm. um, and But the competency issue is very, very, very well covered mm -hmm. with respect to piloting an airplane. Obviously, you know, lives are at stake. Bad stuff can happen. And it can happen quickly. And so uh, there's a very clear cut case for, you know, the rules and regs that that govern whether or not you, you should be in the air solo. Now, I don't know if there are corollaries pointing to what I was talking about earlier with respect to some form of transparency for people who are in high office effectively for life or as long as the voters want to continue voting them in. It's sort of happening through the public discourse already in the fact that we are now talking about as we approach a presidential election, we're talking about, you know, the age of both of the candidates, you know, with obviously, you know, people really leaning in on Joe Biden's status and also Senator Feinstein and and and, uh, mm -hmm. and Senator McConnell obviously are are under some scrutiny. So. Yeah, I don't, and know, before, I don't know if there's some way to formalize, you know, the, a general review of well-being or whatever, especially given the fact that we're talking about abstractions here. We're not talking about sit down and give me, you know, give me 20 push-ups to prove your point. Yeah, you know, we don't need that. But the question then becomes, what do we need? And before we lo lose uh, Natalia, maybe we can uh, let's talk about the 19. Because uh, I really, especially having been in Greece for quite some time, you've seen this uh, th this whole thing of Trump being indicted play out from a uh, uh -huh. from a distant perspective. 
Uh, and Natalia, I, I really would love to take in terms of how your family in Greece views the goings on uh, in America around the sedition and the idea that one of our former presidents now has been indicted four times. So, Michael, I, I think they're less following the news, you know, so they wouldn't know that it's three or four times. But they're they're shocked when when people are, you know, when my husband and I sort of said, you know, this is, you know, he has a real shot at being elected again. And they're they're, they're shocked by that, by that, like genuinely uh, Greeks are saying, like, how how is that possible um, that the United States, the people of the United States would elect someone who has been indicted, who, you know, every everything that has happened, but also his presidency was filled with a lot of hate from, you know, the international community saw that hate. They mm -hmm. saw him pull out of, you know, the Paris Agreement when now the world is burning, you know, it was the middle of fires. Like, so there's a little bit of disbelief that it's even possible that the American people would support a leader that was really seen as anti, you know, the the well-being of the world. And, you know, there were comments about I, I don't want to use the, the word because you'd probably have to bleep it out. The countries in Africa that are, you know, that he thought were right. too poor, you know, th there's been such disdain. So it's it's less about the indictments and, you know, all the, the cases, but more just an overall sense of why. Why would you go there again as, as a people? So I, th I think that was, you know, I, I don't think they're up on every single case because I think they're just kind of surprised by where the U.S. political system is is going and, and the electorate uh, on this. Well, it shows that the leader of the free world can be fickle because voters are fickle. And and that's that's a problem. That That's a key problem. If people are going to depend on us as being the leader of the free world, the one thing we cannot offer them, we cannot offer them the steady state leadership that dictators do. So that's you know, a, an odd turnabout where what you have coming from authoritarian governments is, for better or ill, more stability. And if we can't demonstrate stable leadership, that's an awful lot of damage inflicted on us, you know, as the beacon of light and hope and leader of the free world and all the other things that people would like to attribute to us, all of that gets tarnished. It was recently noted over this past weekend that there was an editorial by the uh, Georgia Secretary of State, in fact, thinking that it would be a bad idea to invoke the 14th Amendment mm. with respect to eligibility for office. And I found that one uh, interesting because his basic take in, the, in his op-ed was, you know, let the people decide, which at least offers from his perspective some consistency. The people decided in the last election it wasn't stolen. And he honored the people's wishes. And here again, he's uh, extending that same discipline and belief system to say, you know, the people the people ultimately will make that determination. But there's a, a drumbeat, a rising drumbeat with respect to the 14th Amendment and whether or not various secretaries of state should include Mr. Trump on the ballot. No, that's that's yeah, that's a, that's a great topic to kick off on because it it shows somewhat of a malinformed uh, uh, interpretation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the, the rules, the, the laws of the country that that seem to be arising. I mean, there is a something happening out in the western part of this country 
uh, far western and that the uh, states uh, of Wyoming, Arizona, uh, the Dakotas. There's an organization called uh, the, the uh, revolving around sheriffs, county sheriffs, elected officials. Uh-huh. Most of them are elected. And basically, this one fella has started an organization, uh, uh, Sheriffs for Right. And they say if they don't agree with the laws, they won't enforce them. They won't do anything about them. They will basically rebel against the laws of the state, the country, the municipality, whatever, whichever they may be, if they do not agree with them. They are elected officials who have taken an oath of office. Generally, that oath of office does require them to enforce and uphold the laws of their county, state, city, whatever they're elected to. Right. And now this this burgeoning group is now saying, no, we're going to band together and say, if we don't like those laws, we're not going to enforce them. We're not going to obey them. It's just kind of a, a wave of ignorance that is just sweeping across the nation, I think. That's odd. I mean, you know. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, look, I, I, and as the one who continually brings in history into this particular conversation, you know, again, this has happened before. Uh, not only has it happened with regard to words, we're not going to enforce it, but it's also happened with regard to deeds. Um, in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, there was an uprising by part of the community when a well-diverse black and white coalition took over city government in Wilmington. And the folks who had been elected uh, because this large group uh, minority didn't like it, went and slaughtered all of the people. And I mean, they literally took guns and killed them. Um, in order to stop them from taking office and taking over the government in Wilmington, North Carolina. Well, slaughtering them all, well, that sends a message. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, not only does it send a message, but it was also uh, ultimately none of the people were convicted. Uh, most of them weren't even prosecuted. Wow. Similar kinds of, of events have taken place all across this country. Mm-hmm. So it's not something new. So the question is, is this who we are? Uh, we really, uh, you know, use a great lip service to tout how we are all uh, follow the rule of law until the rule of law doesn't meet my idea of what mm-hmm. the law ought to be. Uh, and I can tell you that in the minority community, especially in the black and indigenous population community, uh, you know, these populations of this country have suffered through this uh, for centuries. So it's 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 not something new. The question is, how do we deal with who we really are? Well, so much of it always comes back to again, I, you know, I always point to. How do you get people to stop thinking emotionally and start thinking intellectually and be educated and, accordingly? Yeah. And where do you draw the line? You know, because there has to be some there has to be some curbing of strict intellectuality. I mean, of course, at that point, basically, you become, a, a, let's say, a doctor, a, a Mr. Spock character. Well, true. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, to have yeah. some emotional basis. That, I mean, the emotions are going to bring you to a certain level. But yeah, when do you? Where do you make that cutoff? Where does the where do you where does being informed count 
towards something. Well, generally, the heart makes the decision and the head is along for the ride. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way it works with most of the decisions that we make through the day. That's mm -hmm. that's well proven. So the question is, how do you at least educate yourself such that mm -hmm. you're in a position to go, hey, wait a minute, and you at least have the discipline and the, to review the facts as you know them, figure out whether or not your gut reaction makes sense and and that you've put some tools in place to at least try to come up with you know understanding of the candidates and understanding of of uh proposed laws that are on the on the ballot so that way you can make informed decision that's the key the informed decision there are a lot of people making decisions that are just not informed at all mm -hmm. exactly you know, and I want to put a uh, footnote here on this because some people may say, ah, oh, you know, I'm just making this up. The, uh, and some people may not take the time to go and research it. But November 10th, 1898 uh, was when the Wilmington massacre took place. Uh, and again, it was reported as white supremacists who murdered uh, black Americans in Wilmington and took over. Uh, the government after these folks have been duly elected. Uh, and another piece of that, too, that it was a coalition of whites and black Americans who had been elected. Uh, but the blacks were the ones who were killed uh, uh, in this particular incident. Uh, November 10th, 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, for our listeners who want to look it up. Um, and then there's also the uh, uh, the issue of um, speaking of white supremacists, uh, the uh, and again, here is something that I think all of us should have at least a perspective about, uh, which are the sentencing, uh, the sentences for the conspirators for January 6th. Proud uh, Boys. The Proud Boys and Jeff and Natalia. uh <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, I've actually taken some solace in the fact that some real jail time was distributed and dispensed in this instance. But the question is going to become, will it go up the ladder? And is there a potential that some of the others who were actually masterminds behind this, will they see any jail time? Yeah, well, that gets us back to the 19. Well, Jeff, you had something to add? Yeah, I was going to say 700 years of prison sentences have been handed out so far to all of the conspirators who have been convicted. That's 700 years of jail time for following uh, the orders or dictates of, uh, of Trump. And uh, I certainly hope that he will see justice for what he did. And uh, it still amazes me that even though these people are being sentenced these extraordinary sentences, they still seem to follow and believe in him. Uh, it's just it's just remarkable. I'll say that first. The second thing um, I wanted to talk about, uh, last week I came back from a, um, a trade mission to Ireland, and part of that trip had us going up to uh, Belfast and Northern Ireland to uh, visit the area where the walls still exist, where they still close off communities from one another. They do it at 6.30 every night to this day, which 
somewhat shocked me. And I also visited the Parliament in uh, Northern Ireland and was flabbergasted to learn that that Parliament has not sat in over three years. Because under their rules, if a simple minority objects to the seating of Parliament, then it doesn't sit. And they have no functioning uh, legislative branch in that country, uh, which, you know, all in and you're probably saying, okay, what does this have to do with what we're talking about today? Uh, but, you know, there were some commentaries because this was a delegation of, of uh, representatives and senators from throughout the United States. And I was sitting there in shock when some of our, uh, our Western colleagues from Western states would stand up and say, you know, we don't understand this divisiveness and why people hate one another. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do about that? And I'm sitting there uh, talking to some of my colleagues and I'm saying, how, how can you get up there and say, you don't understand divisiveness. You live in a country that has elected a fool in 2016 and is on the verge of sending that fool back up to be the nominee of a major party in America and the divisiveness that has just grown from this whole thing is, uh, is difficult to fathom, but it's there. And to hear people who don't see this in their own country is absolutely uh, remarkable to me. So if you asked me how old is too old, I'd say, uh, those who don't see divisiveness uh, are missing something, and uh, they must be too old, even though I can't put a number to it. <laughs> I th but I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But um, I think the divisiveness uh, is that they see this as they see Trump as a champion, someone who's speaking for them. They've had these views their entire lives, uh, instilled at the kitchen table with their parents, and uh, it goes on and on and on. You, they uh, see the dilution of the uh, the pure white spirit, uh, the pure white race, or, or whatever whatever race. There is divisiveness in every culture, every race in this world. Uh, so, how do you how do you separate those people and say? Can, can we say okay? If you answer certain questions in a certain way. You cannot be a part of the electric electorate. That that can't be done. We can always lie. So that goes back to being informed. I mean, Jeffrey, you in particular have always appealed to an informed electorate. But even at that, there've got to be people who are voting strictly on emotion. How yeah, do no, we? No question about that. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, I don't know how you uh, get to those people. I know that we have uh, tried in instituting uh, or reinstituting civic education back into the system. Mm -hmm. I think yep. uh, everyone from our founding fathers, they all made comments uh, from, from Jefferson to uh, Benjamin Franklin about the importance of having an educated electorate so that the, the union can survive. Um, yet we see, uh, we see that educated electric, uh, electorate just uh, seeming to collapse uh, before our very eyes. And, and one other observation I made while I was out there, and particularly while I was in Belfast, 
was uh, a, a parent and a police chief uh, talking about a law that uh, England was contemplating, uh, and they expected it to pass within the next two to three weeks, that England was going to provide immunity uh, to any of the murderers during the troubles mm-hmm. if they would go to the families and explain to them uh, how their loved one died. And here was a father who lost his son some 25 years ago saying, that's not my idea of justice, that this person will come into a room, tell me how they killed my son, and then they are to run free. That's not justice. And you, know, you, you sit there and you go, how does a law that is universally uh, opposed and, and opposed at multiple levels, how does it come to pass that it becomes the law of the land and has this incredible impact on all of these families uh, uh, in, in Northern Ireland? I was just uh, flabbergasted by that. They fully expected it to become the law of the land. Yeah, it seems to be some sort of a torqued uh, um, view of the South African uh, mission that was set up by uh, Bishop um, um, in in that country uh, where you. They they definitely made reference. Yeah. Yeah. And but but that, I think, was aimed more towards forgiveness. Uh, This just sounds like. It's just kind of, you know, you, you can take this one step and you get a free pass. Yeah. For murder. For murder, exactly. And the murder is, right. you know, murder, as you say, is a university, well, seemingly universally reviled act. Uh, but we have, we always have those who will look at degrees of everything and justify, well, my murder is nowhere near as uh, atrocious as your murder. The, the same thing that happens in this world all around. My sin is does not have as much uh, onus upon it as your sin. Your sin is far greater than mine. Yep. That's the whataboutism. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the issue that you brought up earlier, Nick, around the idea that as a country that, again, espouses that we live under the rule of law. Uh, I don't know if you folks noticed this week, but the state of Alabama place where I'm located right this moment, was again for the second time admonished by some of the highest courts in the country for not adhering to a Supreme Court ruling. I don't know if our listeners uh, are aware, but the Supreme Court uh, just a couple of months ago announced a ruling uh, against the state of Alabama when they were arguing that they had the right to draw districts, congressional districts in any way, shape or form they wanted to. And Supreme Court said, no, you have to take into account that you have the ability to create some minority majority districts, that is districts where there are a majority uh, folks of color in this instance. And you have to go back and draw at least two uh, where up to that point, they had drawn one and said, that's all we have to do. And we really didn't have to do that one. Well, the Supreme Court disagreed. Well, after the ruling, the state of Alabama legislature drew up a district uh, or drew up a congressional map, rather, and put it back in front of the court. And the court said, you did nothing different. 
And the state of Alabama said, yes, we did, because um, we did exactly what we ha- are entitled to do, which is we still have one minority majority district. And the court said, no, that's not what the Supreme Court said. So the court now has ruled that, OK, we're going to draw the districts. So in this instance, we have a whole state that's saying, uh, similar to what you said before, Nick, about the sheriffs out in the western part of the country, we have a whole state that's saying, "Hey, we don't like the we don't like what you said. We don't like the law or your interpretation of the law. So we're just going to do what we want to do." And the courts are now trying to intervene, saying, "No, you can't do that." At the end of the day, who's going to win that? And how will they win it? Will it be enforced by uh, the well at this point? Well, at this point, there's going to be there's a special master that's been appointed Mm -hmm. uh, by the appeals court uh, who's going to redraw the map. And the idea is, at the end of the day, this map potentially could be imposed upon the people of Alabama, leading to either more chaos or more Mm -hmm. animosity or uh, more defiance. But it's something that all of us have to uh, pay attention to and be aware of. We say that we are a country that lives under the rule of law. uh, But at the same time, if there is a uh, whether a vocal uh, minority or those who are in power uh, don't like the particular laws, then they think that they can either circumvent them or ignore them. Look at our friends in Tennessee. Uh, you know, and they're going through this whole kabuki dance in Tennessee based upon their failure to address uh, gun control. Well, it, it, it goes it goes back. I mean, we're refighting, not refighting. We've never stopped fighting certain battles in this country, particularly look at George Wallace in the schoolhouse door. That's where we are right now. That's where we've always been. Ongoing. Ongoing, ongoing. and. With the Internet, again, say what you will of the Internet, it does get opinions out there. It does get the news out there quickly. There's no 24 hour, you know, there's no turnaround. News doesn't stop. So we're fighting that same fight. We had George Wallace. We had the National Guard called in. We had high Justice Department officials going down to face down George Wallace in the schoolhouse door. Those who thought that that had resolved it and we were past that once segregation and, you know, uh, the desegregation became the law everywhere. I think they they're not paying attention. I think this is something that we're going to battle forever. We have been and we will continue to do so. That does not mean I, I walk away from this in a defeatist attitude and feel like, you know, well, it's going to go on forever. Why bother? It's it's something that you just continue to battle. It's always going to be there. It's like your weight. You fight a weight battle. I fight a weight battle my weight battle my entire life. So just keep at it. Well, part of it is the obviating of that battle in the form of attacking the woke mob and the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, the cultural issues have basically dominated you know, the the mindset versus any real issues that people should be more concerned about. It's, you know, what what can make the electorate angry enough to vote for me? That's mm-hmm. the, that's that's the MO right now. Yeah. Push those buttons and blow that yep. dog whistle. Well, Jeff, what has 
been the been the tenor up on Beacon Hill? You you guys got a budget done. You've gotten quite a few things in terms of economic development. You went over to Ireland. Uh, I didn't get invited on that economic venture and stuff. I've got a lot to say about some of the things we ought to do. We ought to import more Guinness, if you ask me. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so give us a little brief overview of how the sort of national politics are impacting Massachusetts, because they are. Well, things are really coming alive, I can tell you, up on Beacon Hill. Uh, this has been an extraordinary week already, and it's the first week after Labor Day. Uh, my schedule has been as vicious as I've ever seen it in terms of things to do. One of the things that we will be tackling uh, this afternoon is we're getting a, uh, a briefing from the lieutenant governor on what is happening with the migrants op- um, occupying hotels. I mean, we could do a, a whole show on uh, that particular topic, and uh, one of the hotels that is being utilized is in Franklin, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, issues have arisen. I mean, it's uh, part of the right to shelter law that we've had on the books in Massachusetts for over 40 years. Uh, it's a compassionate law. It's uh, dealing with people who are here, who have children, who need a place to live. And uh, so the governor declared a state of emergency uh, 10 days ago. And uh, these folks are being housed in hotels throughout the Commonwealth, uh, including uh, Massachusetts. So that's something uh, that we're grappling with uh, right now, uh, issues such as whether the state is going to pay the local hotel tax to uh, the communities who rely on this revenue for their budgets, whether the state is going to reimburse communities for the schooling of uh, the children who will be absorbed uh, by the local school districts public safety issues, a host of those. So we'll be talking about that today. Um, I've been talking to folks about uh, yet another climate and energy bill uh, that uh, we hope to get done uh, relatively soon. And when I say soon, um, my hope is by the end of the year uh, or early 2024. Uh, And uh, we have a housing bond bill that uh, the governor is supposed to uh, kick out uh, to us uh, relatively soon. We have a supplemental budget that uh, we're trying to put the finishing touches on. So uh, I'm looking forward to a quite an active uh, couple of weeks uh, as we return from uh, the Labor Day uh, piece. And in terms of uh, you coming on that trip, we would have loved to have had you on that trip. Uh, It was open to uh, legislators from throughout the United States, and there were about 200 uh, that showed up. It was the largest uh, group of American public officials to visit the country of Ireland. And it was also the largest group of state and federal officials to visit the parliament uh, in Dublin. So it was an extraordinary opportunity. I was uh, delighted to be a part of it. And uh, I did uh, drink enough Guinness to satisfy uh, your need to get that product uh, out here to uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I don't want to look at another Guinness for some time, but uh, <laughs> well, an extraordinary I, trip, an extraordinary opportunity. Yeah, yeah well, uh, I I still haven't received my share. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, get, get, get down to the big Y. They've got it there. Yeah, there we go. There we go. There we go. Well, uh, well, Jeff, I, you know, I know you guys uh, 
are doing some extraordinary work up on Beacon Hill. And uh, I would appreciate, again, for our, you know, for our listeners here in Franklin, that if you have some idea or you want to know what's going on, Jeff is always open. Uh, so when it comes to, as Nantalia said, doing a PSA, all of us here are always available for your comments and your feedback. Uh, I particularly would love to have more feedback uh, from our listeners about what you think about some of the things we say and also some of our points of view. Uh, some of you may agree or not disagree, but uh, I will say this. It's 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 a pleasure to work with uh, such wonderful people, uh, and I hope we're able to even start to focus a little more. One of the things that I know that I'm I'm interested in uh, for uh, my teammates here, we've had some controversy with our uh, elected official in Congress uh, representing Franklin. And I hope that we can showcase some of that soon with his presence and we can talk to him directly and have him in his own words uh, sort of tell us or give us some updates about what's going on down in Washington. It's been much too long since we've had him on. Always good to hear from our elected officials. And he is coming to uh, Franklin to spend uh, almost an entire day um, in the next couple of weeks. I'll get you the date, but that's certainly an opportunity for us to sit down with him and, and talk to him, but I will definitely talk to him about coming back to more perfect union because who better to help us get to a more perfect union than our, our representative mm. on uh, the Hill down in Washington, DC. As opposed to beacon. There you go. <laughs> well, oh, I, I'm a little biased. I think all the actions happening on the state level, but uh, that's for another day. Oh, well, I think I think you're right there. I think the states are <laughs> the, the, all the states are moving towards uh, taking front row in this to quite a, a degree because of the seeming. Uh, I sense another inactivity. show. Yes, I sense I, another show here. Definitely another show, because right now, another more perfect union hour has flown by and we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now. As as Michael said, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website wfpr.fm so for our guest the returning and greatly missed dr natalia linos dr michael walker jones our representative jeff roy along with peter J, and our just tirelessly patient engineer keith palmieri who keeps everything spinning here for us we do appreciate your work keith i'm nick remesong Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.